With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. another episode edition of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. My name is Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt, one half the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. And with me as ever is my partner in crime, Santoki. How you doing? Yeah, Mash, we've started 2023. As we always say, never a dull day in West Indies cricket. It's been a busy week with the Test Squad announced for the Zimbabwe Tour and also the much-anticipated release of the independent group review into West Indies' performance at last year's T20 World Cup. I'm chaired by Justice Patrick Thompson Jr., a judge from the Eastern Caribbean Court, Brian Lara and international coach Mickey Arthur. So there's been a lot happening this week, Mash, and we've gone straight to the top to get our next guest, a returning guest, back on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I like to feel like at the start of a year and midway through the year, we always bring um, Johnny Grave on to kind of almost do like a State of the Union address. And it's, it's it's important. It actually is really important to do so, though, because, you know, Santok, you and I know very well by now, as well as everybody watching this, that West Indies cricket, so much is said on the forums, in the newspapers, different media platforms. And unless you get the people on the show who actually do know what's going on, a lot of rumour and conjecture can reign. And that's how you get kind of um, false stories gaining head ground. And we've always been very much about letting the key stakeholders say what they need to say. And we'll ask them the questions that need to be asked. And then we're all set. We're all set in so much as understanding where we're trying to go, what we're trying to do. Uh, and so on and so forth. For those listening, though, in terms of the independent report into the T20 World Cup, we are planning to do um, a standalone episode with Justice Thompson um, looking at that in detail. So we won't dive too much into it with Johnny. We might ask a few questions here and there pertaining to his role, but we won't dive too much into it. I think that's for a separate um, episode. This is more about looking at the holistic picture of Cricket West Indies for the year ahead in 2023. So without any further ado, let me bring Johnny on and uh, let's get into it. Johnny, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. Happy New Year. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on again. 
Um, happy New Year! Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot, I forgot that, we're, that it's actually a, a New Year in that sense as well. But good to get you on the show, Johnny. And um, first things first, actually, let's let we. I just touched on the fact that we're not going to be delving too deeply into that report, but we are at the time of recording one day out um, since it was since it dropped. Um, is what's your kind of take in terms of how it's been? Um, uh, consumed by people, whether the media take or amongst the suits and boots, etc. Are you happy with it? What's your kind of immediate take on it? I think my immediate take on it is it was um, it was a really good exercise in terms of getting some independence and getting some outside views as well um, on the analysis that we obviously would do internally um, in the aftermath of any tour or World Cup, whether it's successful or unsuccessful. But getting that independent set of eyes. Uh, onto some of the reasons that we'd identified and some ones that perhaps we we need to focus on that that maybe perhaps we thought were um you know weren't in necessarily as as high a priority as perhaps they should be so certainly some obvious takeaways in terms of you know continuing to keep although they've improved massively I would say over the last few years the player relations side of it and player communication um, side of it we we've obviously tended to focus for the last couple of years on um, on communication with players reading about COVID and protocols and these kinds of things and the environment that they're going to be entering on a tour rather than necessarily um, being able to go and spend some face time with them and some informal time with them like we had done pre-COVID. So I think as we've now come out of that, thank God, you know, I think getting myself, Jimmy Adams and other people on the ground and with the players and, and talking them through our plans and where we're heading as an organisation and where we want the team to go, I think that was... You know, one of the takeaways is, um, and also that, uh, as it has done anyway, you know, the, the, the importance of starting the planning now for the, the World Cup in, in 2024, which obviously has a even greater focus for us as an organisation on, on the basis that we're hosting it. So whilst we're very, very busy and have been active for the last few months in terms of the planning and the logistics of that World Cup with the ICC, um, you know, Jimmy and, and the cricket department planning from that, uh, from a team perspective, is, is equally as important. But, um, yeah, look, I, I, it was an enormous amount of work. It was very thorough in terms of they spoke to a lot of people. Um, you know, all three of them did it on uh, pretty much, in my opinion, a voluntary basis. You know, we've, we've given them a very small stipend as a, as, a, as a token gesture of our thanks for their commitment to what they did. But, um, you know, I thought it was a really comprehensive piece of work and certainly looking forward to unpicking it um, over the next few weeks and making sure that as quickly as we can, we can take on you know, all those recommendations uh, and start working on the, the medium to long term, which if you, if you read that report, you read the PKF report, you read the Webby report, you read the, the recent task force review um, that looked at the franchise system and you put all of that together and the fact that we'll be entering strategic planning mode shortly um, because our last strategic plan was... Uh, 2019 to 2023 um, it's now time to do 23 to 27 so all of those things will be you know really useful uh, bank of information and analysis for us to um, to use yeah and for anyone listening or watching if you want to read the reports on the cricket West Indies website at the moment as Johnny said it's, it's very thorough. I think they've made 34 recommendations for cricket West Indies to try and implement based on that report but Johnny we're going to go straight into the deep end and there was one sort of long-term 
recommendation or report made. I'm just going to read out the exact words. CWI should mandate that the CEO of the territorial boards are to meet on a monthly or quarterly basis with the CEO of Cricket West Indies, yourself, and Jimmy Adams, the director of cricket. These meetings should facilitate and encourage greater cooperation between territorial boards and serve to reduce the insularity that has been the bane of West Indies cricket since its inception. Now, those are quite powerful words. From your perspective, as you'll be directly involved in this action, is it a welcome recommendation? Uh, again, it's probably one that you know provides a bit more focus. I mean, we do meet regularly with the with the CEOs. Um, not all the territorial boards have CEOs in place. Must be said, There's still one or two interims. Um, we're meeting actually today to to on the eve of the West Indies Championship to make sure we're all aligned. And and Jimmy Adams regularly meets with the uh, with the six uh, head coaches and and some others involved in those elite systems, but. I think, again, it speaks to what I said around the players and face-to-face time. It's really important that, you know, despite the fact that we're based in different countries, that we uh, we spend as much time um, talking to uh, our counterparts and making sure we get that alignment. And one of the things we tried to do in the last strategic plan was make sure that all the territorial boards had strategic plans themselves for the same period that were aligned to ours. Didn't quite um, happen. So uh, that, that's a big, I think, focus for us is to make sure that as we enter that strategic planning phase for the uh, line to those ICC cycles, 23 to 27, really trying to help the territorial boards to have both a, a cricket development plan and an overall strategic plan that is aligned to ours. Uh, ours will be aligned to the ICCs and therefore we can all move forward and, uh, and hopefully make some significant progress. Johnny, I think one of the things I found most difficult to kind of process when I've kind of read different takes, articles, etc., on West Indies cricket is the lack of acknowledgement that we had a significant period of the pandemic and the shutdown it had on cricket in the in the in the region. And I'm often at a kind of at my wit's end to remind people that cricket only generally returned in March last year but from a ceo perspective what were some of the if you can articulate some of the real hurdles to have to overcome to almost bring everything back online again because it has been a kind of what not just on the pitch but off the pitch it's been tumultuous in terms of having to deal with a set of circumstances that have never been faced before yeah covid was yeah pretty brutal for everyone but um uh, particularly everyone in the Caribbean, and we were no different. I think we were in a, in a difficult position because obviously the next tour um, internationally that we were due to have was England. England couldn't host us in June, but wanted us desperately to come in July. Otherwise, they were fa- facing you know, financial Armageddon on the basis that they're so highly geared to that Sky broadcast money. Um, we also had our, our next assignment was, um, was New Zealand away after what we would have hosted was New Zealand and South Africa that summer. And New Zealand were in a similar position, which again, their summer is what, five months long um, at best. So they were desperate for us to go. Um, And with various commercial reasons as well, wanting to have the CPL, um, then we had the IPL that sort of raised their head. It was a very dynamic situation. So we were hoping, I think originally, if we went to England, we could still get South Africa here. Um, We could then have the CPL. And if we had to, we could have the CPL first, then South Africa then head to New Zealand. And by doing that, we would have had some home cricket. Um, and as I've said before, it's only when you have home cricket do you really unlock those broadcast and uh, sponsorship deals. So 
in the end, it didn't transpire that way. We we went England, CPL, and then the IPL appeared, and then we went straight to New Zealand. So we missed out on you know, almost uh, 12 to 15 months of no cricket. And the cricket that we had was pretty low low value in terms of hosting Ireland just before the pandemic and then hosting Sri Lanka immediately afterwards. So it was a brutal period financially. Um, and as you say, in terms of recreational games, schools, cricket, even franchise cricket, most of the governments, um, not unlike the rest of the world, but shut down all sports, shut down all activity on a group basis. So everything shut down. And for anyone who has properties or has lived in the Caribbean, you know, if you, if you don't use stuff for six months, let alone a year or two years, when you come back to use it again, it doesn't necessarily work. So um, we, we had an awful lot of... Um, effort, I guess, in, in 2022 to restart and kickstart all those programs at all levels. Um, and hence why probably 2022 was the busiest cricket year, I think, probably in our history. Uh, we hosted so many international tours for the men and for the women. We hosted the Under-19 Cricket World Cup, the biggest ICC event we've ever hosted in terms of number of teams. Um, we had all of our regional youth tournaments back on stream, 18 cricket. Uh, we launched the Men's Academy. We had CPL, we launched the women's CPL, we launched the T10 League in the 60s. Um, I think people, you know, when the team are losing, people forget about all of that sort of stuff. But from our side, you know, 2022 was, you know, an extremely busy year. But as you rightly acknowledge, so important for us to get everything back up and running so that, you know, we can really start the, the, the production line of, of cricket, I guess, um, at all levels um, back to what it was pre-COVID. So looking ahead to 2023, a lot of fans have been talking about, you know, uh, West Indies only play six tests um, in the year, this year, 2023. Um, sort of how are you looking to balance that? Would there be more A-team tours throughout the year to kind of get players into the groove of playing first-class cricket regularly? Yeah, that's pretty much the intention. So the, the first half of the year is really a, a Red Bull focus and that will probably, we hope, be consistent in future years. So... Not that people will, will view the Red Bull cricket happening now as, as first-class cricket, because it isn't. Um, but all the territories are now playing sort of best-be-best best games, trial matches ahead of the West Indies Championship, which is still good active cricket, which means hopefully when it comes to the first ball of the West Indies Championship in February, teams will be better prepared than ever. Uh, and also players have had the opportunity to, 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 through performances, to try and get into those starting 11s or squads. Um, so a Red Bull focus in the West Indies Championship. Then we're trialling this new initiative of Headley Weeks, um, which, which will satisfy a few things. It's going to be enhanced best week best, so it will have first-class status. The players will get their match fees, which aren't insignificant. Um, they are going to play against the academy, and the academy are going to be coming at them hard, wanting to prove that they can um, play sort of first-class cricket. And for us, it's a good opportunity to gauge I guess, six months into the academy, how much progress those players have made. Looking ahead to next year, could, could for example, the academy genuinely play in the West Indies Championship? Would they be competitive enough over the four-day game? We know they've been competitive and um, playing under that emerging players title in Super 50, but you know the four-day game is a different uh, concept and a, and a different equation. So I think Headley Weeks will give us a real indication of whether the, the, the academy could actually genuinely enter the West Indies Championship next year. Um, it also means that at every stage of the Red Bull cricket through January to April, um, players have got a real carrot. So if you do well in the trial matches, you should get into the championship. If you do well in the championship, you should get into Headley Weeks. And then pretty soon after Headley Weeks, we're going to have an away tour, um, only Red Bull cricket to Bangladesh. 
Um, and then also the emerging players are going to go on what we hope will be some international assignments in June, again, with very much a Red Bull focus. Uh, and then clearly the international um, summer arrives with a visit of India. So again, if players have done well in trial matches, West Indies Championship, Headley Weeks, A-Team, they got a chance to play India in, in the test side. Then we break for the CPL. Um, and again, we're looking to expand the women's CPL in particular this year. Um, and then we've got what we hope will be the 50 over World Cup. But we've got some matches that we're not involved with over the next few weeks, which will dictate and determine whether we, we can relax and know that we're, uh, we're going ahead with uh, India in, in October, November, or whether we've got to head to Zimbabwe like we did uh, back in 2018 and, and qualify again. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be a busy year, but there's very much a Red Bull focus for the next um, six months. And one of the things we'll be announcing in a few weeks is all of the youth tournaments will happen in the summer. And actually, Red Bull cricket will feature in our under-17 tournament for the first time ever. So, yeah, people will cuss us out because there's only five rounds and say we're not interested in Red Bull cricket. But that genuinely couldn't be farther, farther away from the truth. Um, and it's, re you know, it's rightly highlighted in in Justice Thompson's report, because we still all firmly believe that it's the long-form game, the multi-day Red Bull version where players can best learn and hone their techniques, um, which will hopefully serve them as a decent foundation as they as they look to play all three formats at the highest level. Well, I think I think one thing we all know in, in this conversation is there'll always be a cuss out in West Indies cricket, regardless of, of what happens. Um, but it's interesting there, Johnny, because you've obviously listed a systematic process for players to kind of develop in Red Bull cricket and eventually make the test side. Just going back to that report briefly, it did suggest um white ball players such as Nicholas Poran and Evan Lewis and Odian Smith kind of um needing to be given the opportunity to be playing test cricket um, and it listed the Australia and Pakistan tours next year as a potential start. Just kind of your initial kind of reaction and perspective on that. How do you envision that working? Because obviously if they were, there's T20 franchise leagues seemingly every month at the moment. So you'd imagine they wouldn't be able to go through that process to make the test side. How would that sort of, how would you align that vision? Well, look, some of them have. I mean, we, we managed to get an A-team tour to New Zealand back in 2020 and because of COVID and everything else, uh, that afforded some of those guys the opportunity to play some first-class cricket. Um, uh, it, it's, it's not easy, is the, is, the, is the reality. And you can spend a lot of time and money um, creating a structure where you think there's a window, an opportunity for those players to maybe play three or four games and then another league, an opportunity will come around and, you know, what are not insignificant amounts of money are being offered to players. And they say, look, I'd love to play it, but $50,000 is $50,000. So, um, you know, I, I can't really turn that down. I think the players are desperate to uh, develop their games and to play some of it. Um, whether we can be like England and fast track a player like Josh Butler, just straight from white ball cricket into red ball cricket and, and see how they go. Um, clearly, you'd ideally like to give them a bit more preparation. But, you know, I think Taz Chanderpool proved that whilst it might have been better on paper, and I would have said give him some home matches against Bangladesh and then go and have the challenge of Australia. Sometimes when you throw players right in at the deep end, sink or swim, they swim. And, and, and um, you know, maybe that, that's an approach the selectors may have to take. But we're certainly working with the players, working with the agents, communicating openly on all the, all the sort of um, scheduling that we have. But um, the calendar isn't really getting any quieter, um, both from an international and Cricket West Indies perspective, as well as... Um, you know, all of these franchise leagues and, and clearly at the moment there's three going up against themselves, which I'm sure will, or four if you include the Big Bash, I guess. Um, so you've got 
maybe an opportunity where they might start to, to, to try and get a bit of distance between themselves, which means with Major League Cricket starting next year or due to start next year as well, it's, it's, there's basically going to be 12 months of franchise cricket opportunities. But I think it's hopefully at some point the players will um, be able to, I want them to certainly create at least two opportunities, one where they can actually get some rest and spend some time with their friends and families and, and recharge mentally. And also, secondly, to to play some Red Bull cricket. And and if not play Red Bull cricket, certainly come here to Antigua on, on what we were sort of, say, technical camps to work on the technical side of their games um, and, and see that as a good investment to, you know, boost their earnings in franchise leagues. So instead of going for a, a lower fee, go for the absolutely highest possible fee. Um, and maybe giving up one or two of the, the lower uh, revenue leagues in order to get the absolute max in the biggest is, is maybe something that we can persuade those players to do. It's interesting you bring up the calendar there, Johnny, because whenever the international cricket, cricket calendar comes up, we, we hear a lot from the kind of key stakeholders in the bigger quote-unquote nations, but we don't tend to hear a lot and I guess I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, from the West Indian perspective with regards to how this, how the calendar, how is a calendar put together with the views of teams like West Indies um, taken into consideration? So there's no getting away from it. Obviously, the calendar is shrinking the amount of availability and time for West Indies to play um, Red Bull cricket, although granted in 2024 we're actually playing 11 tests, which I think has kind of gone under the radar a bit. But, um, but when these meetings are happening, and yes, it could be Ricky who's mostly at these meetings, but I'm sure you have a, a say as well. Can you just give us an insight into the difficulties, maybe difficulties is the wrong word, in getting, I guess, a West Indian perspective across? Because it feels like everyone recognises the impact it's having on our game and our players and the fact that they can't really turn down these available revenue streams. But what can be... I don't want... When I say what can be done, that's not accusatory against the players, but what can be done for the benefit of um, West Indies cricket? And I guess second to that is the fact that we don't get England at any point in the next four years did we try to fight for that? Is it that we just can't, they can't fit us in or anything like that? So it feels like a major blow to not be able to get them back, given we beat them as well. <laughs> yeah, where do I start answering all that? Um, so, yeah, look, the, the ICC Chief Execs Committee is basically um, the forum where the calendar is, is, is built. Um, normally supported by the head of cricket ops, so in my case, Roland Holder. Um, that will assist me in that role. Um, the reality is that once the board, so the, the, the ICC board, have approved the recommendation from the Chief Execs Committee on the structure of uh, the world game, so predominantly that means the ICC events and the ICC board, which we were advocates of, have identified um, a global event every year. Uh, and that's really because in 2018 there was no... ICC global events so had a big impact on their revenues, on their cash flow, and consequently on ours. And, and you know, almost 40% of our revenue comes from the ICC. So we're, we're very dependent on it compared to maybe the, the, the big three, as, as you called earlier. Um, so once the ICC events are in um, and you've got that structure of the World Test Championship, yeah, the first big 
discussion uh, is who are your home teams in the World Test Championship. And clearly, England not coming is a is a massive blow to us, our fans, and to the English fans. Um, and we were bitterly disappointed. Um, we worked for many months with the ICC trying to re-assign the teams, but it's very, very complicated in terms of the Northern Hemisphere sides and the Southern Hemisphere sides and exactly how that, that works. And clearly, you know, again, we, we, we can play cricket and host cricket really 12 months of the year, in which case, you know, sometimes we have to do the greater good, which is why when that became apparent, we worked so hard to maximise the white ball tours that England came. So we were able to negotiate more more games for on their 2019 tour, additional test match, two additional T20s. And then they're coming in the latter part of this year in December and they're coming next year. So you know, the reality is for us, it's a blow to our fans. It's a blow to English fans not having a, a test tour to the Caribbean. But hopefully it means that when... We will get one in 27 or 28. It will be even bigger because um, people would have been looking forward to it for so long. But commercially, you know, a test match is almost worth the same as a T20 or one day international. So actually having two white ball tours is, is not a commercial blow to us, um, albeit we understand the disappointment and the history and the heritage of that, um, of that iconic series. So um, I'm trying to remember what else you asked. Um, it, I think in terms of the rest of the calendar, you, you've clearly got um, agreements in place before you sit down with the big three. Um, the Ashes is always going to go in. Um, India are now almost playing, in terms of time, the equivalent of the Ashes against both England and Australia. And so when you put in the IPL, the ICC events, India and, and Australia and England's content, there's there's very little time left um, in the calendar. We've got an agreement with our players that we'll give them the full window of the IPL. We'll ensure that they get the full opportunity for the CPL because they still get separate contracts and significant remuneration from the CPL. And then over and above that, the unwritten agreement we have with players is we'll try and identify one, possibly two windows where they could maybe go and get additional leagues. And that's really for the all, all format players. Um, hence why we've We've always moved Super 50 around to try and not compete with the Abu Dhabi T10 because that's a short league, very good remuneration, in which case we try to give that as a third opportunity. Uh, and for our white ball players that don't play test cricket, there's normally during a test series another opportunity for them to go and play outside of the region. So it's a balancing act um, and clearly, you know, understanding how all that works, um, you know, our prime focus, being completely honest, is get as many England games and India games as quickly as you can. And then, you know, everything falls out from there, really. You've got to tick the boxes of the opposition that um, the ICC give you in that World Test Championship. Clearly for us, we, we've got, you know, the most expensive international flight um, costs of, of anyone in, in terms of complication and the routes, you know, during the... the the peak season of December to, to May, coming back into the Caribbean or leaving the Caribbean, either up to Miami, New York or London, you know, is, is highly expensive in terms of business class seats with not a huge amount of availability. So clearly, if we're drawn Sri Lanka in the Test Championship, we really want to go and play, you know, T20s and ODIs at the same time so that we don't have to necessarily incur, you know, massive costs to go back for whiteboard tours. So other than that, really, it's a case of, as you say, trying to identify some windows where players could actually have a rest, which for us has been trying to keep the Christmas and New Year period a bit sacrosanct and say to our players, look, 
you can have, we all know how big Christmas is in the Caribbean. Look, have Christmas as your downtime, um, spend that to recharge. And then outside of that, you know, if you want to make the decision rather than rest or work on your technical game to maximise your earnings, then who are we to complain or, or criticise because cricket is such a short-term career. It's so uncertain in terms of whether you're going to get selection or whether you're going to get injured, in which case very difficult for us to force players um, to rest or force players to come here to work on their technical games. But that's something that we're definitely you know, doing more. Now we've got this fantastic asset of Coolidge Cricket Ground. Now we don't have COVID. Um, we'll be looking to use this um, for those technical interventions on an ongoing basis across the three squads. Hmm. Yeah, so we might not we might not be hosting England in test matches for the next few years, but we are hosting, the region is hosting the T20 World Cup next year. How far along are Cricket West Indies in terms of the process in announcing, selecting and announcing the hosts uh, for those games? Yeah, look, we went out at the, at the start of this year, so about three weeks ago, to all the governments um, around bidding for the England tour. And in fact, actually the India tour as well that's coming this summer and, and England, as I said, coming in December. Uh, we'll hopefully close that pro process out in the next four to six weeks and then we'll immediately start on the T20 World Cup. We would have liked to um, have started the T20 World Cup first, but there's been various uncertainties with USA cricket in terms of venues and number of matches, which consequently we, we don't really want to go through the bid process and then either have to amend it or, or start again. So we've, we're, we're in a kind of holding pattern, waiting for clarity on the, on the US side of the tournament before going with absolute certainty to our regional governments around the opportunities and the number of matches that um, we'll have in 2024. Interesting. Uh, obviously, we better make sure there's some games at Sabina Park, but other than that, we, we, we can keep it moving. But, um, but actually, let me just, just touching on that uh, tournament, how much of a um, financial bonanza is as a host nation, quote-unquote nation, of the World Cup, how do the finances kind of break down for that? Is, it, is, there, a, is there a financial boom to hosting that World Cup? Yeah, there is. And that was one of our big points in the last cycle, that whilst you know we were able in 2019, 2018 to sort of pair back a little bit, the big three takeover of ICC and, and, and Australia now get the same distribution as us. England get 10 million more and, and India has always been an outliner on the basis that they generate you know 90% of the revenue. But one of the other things that they did outside of distribution was that all of the men's events were hosted in those three nations exclusively. Uh, and back in those days, you got a significant host fee per match. So you know, England would have made almost $100 million from hosting the 2019 Cricket World Cup where our total distribution over eight years is, is, is just under 120 million. So it was a very sort of uh, cloak and dagger way of doubling your ICC revenue um, by the big three, who are already, as I've said, at length, are already hugely advantaged on the back of their own domestic markets and their own bilateral cricket and domestic TV deals. So one of the things that the ICC board have now done, and you'll see in the allocation of events for the men's team uh, or the men's events from 23 to 31 is, most of the four members are getting um, those, those um, events and where they're not getting them or where they're not the prime host, they're sharing them. So South Africa and Zimbabwe, it, the England and Ireland and Scotland, India and Sri Lanka, England and Bangladesh, for example, uh, in which case everyone's really getting the opportunity to earn those, 
those fees and rather than them being varying sort of host fees which is your minimum guarantee of revenue i guess from those events it's now a, a completely standard fee so everyone will get the same so pakistan will get the same for the champions trophy in 2025 as we will from the world cup in 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 uh, 24 um you you on top of the host fee you also get the opportunity to retain all of the ticketing hospitality and concessions revenue now Clearly, some of that has to go to your venues as part of procuring and signing up the venues for the event. But, it, you know, certainly they wouldn't be getting all of it, um, although we haven't entered those uh, agreements yet. Um, but I would conservatively say so that fans can get an idea. You, you're talking about, about, I'd be disappointed if we didn't generate or have an injection of, of north of 20 million US dollars. Um, so about 50% of our annual revenue could come in just, just hosting that event. Um, so it, it really can be a game changer. If you, if you talk to New Zealand cricket, um, they went through a lot of reform and changes in governance, and it really was that cash injection of the 2015 World Cup that was the platform and foundation and catalyst for all that change. And, and my hope and aspiration is that you know the 2024 Cricket World Cup and an injection of you know 20 million or more will be that um, silver bullet we're all looking for to really go to the next level of professionalising our system. And um, just in terms of uh, white ball cricket, obviously we don't have a permanent coach at the moment for the white ball side, Andre Coley taking over in the interim. I've read reports that you're looking to recruit a coach by the end of March, April. This report, um, this review, the independent review, has suggested separate coaches for white ball and red ball cricket. Obviously there are financial repercussions to that decision. What is sort of the thinking at the moment? Do you think you'll go down that route or stick to one coach for all formats? My, we haven't really discussed it at length with the board. I think they would all be concerned about the financial impact. Um, my clear view is that we should have two coaches. Um, you know, when you when you think about it, um, if if we ask the selectors to identify three pools of twenty five players across the three formats with a bit of duplication, you're probably talking as many as forty players. Now, for any manager in any business, managing forty direct reportees with the fact that you're not based in the same country, with the fact that there's all of these franchise leagues to really build a relationship and understand what they're doing, just from a player relation and player planning and player communication point of view, notwithstanding that you're in the mix of battle um, pretty much relentlessly other than the IPL and CPL windows, and the fact that we're expecting you to do comprehensive reviews of every engagement and plan and prepare for every tour. When I think you put all those components together, and we also recognise the human side of it, that you're also going to need a break. Um, the, the, the men's head coach of the West Indies is, is, is not necessarily a role that's immune to criticism, immune to the media. Um, so in terms of getting away and recharging and um, soul-searching at times is important. So I, I'm a big advocate. I, I, I think you're, you're right to say um, the white ball separate head coach um, is probably an easy one to, to sort of to split and there's more of a rhythm to that um, that role with the, the ICC events in particular. Um, that said, I think you know, one of the advantages of splitting it is that whilst players have more opportunity than ever, coaches do as well. And I think there are very, very few international coaches, many of whom have been players. So they've been on the circuit, if you want, playing relentless cricket, living out of hotels, traveling around the world. Do they really want to continue that into their 40s, 50s? No, they don't. So splitting the coaches actually, um, I think, will will widen the pool of individuals um, that would that would potentially apply. 
Um, and I'm not opposed to saying that the, the Red Bull head coach can do more in the system. There's nothing to say that that Red Bull head coach, for example, couldn't be the head coach of our A team or couldn't get involved in the high performance um, centre here in Antigua. So I think we've got a bit of work to do. But one of the things we wanted to do was get um, the report from Justice Thompson. I think one of the takeaways from that is the importance of, you know, actually, you know, do we want the best technical coach as our head coach or do we want the best man manager, communicator, mentor, motivator? Uh, and I think it's therefore giving us, um, you know, an idea of who the candidate is. And, and my personal view is, you know, we're not looking at necessarily attracting from a financial perspective, you know, the highest paid coach in the world. We need a coach that, that that's motivated by the purpose of the organisation that really wants to improve West Indies cricket, get us back to the top. And I think if we take those softer skills and what Justice Thompson has identified with his committee, what we already know in terms of our structure of, of cricket between now and 2027, we can be very, very clear about the person that we want. And when we set the financial um, budget, I guess, for, for what I hope will be two roles, we'll find the right person who wants to do it for the right reason and fits all of those other things that, that we spoke about. And, and as I, I said in interviews, while I hope it will be a global search, you know, we're still guided by the West Indies first policy. We still think that people from the Caribbean who understand our culture, understand, you know, the players a bit more, you know, have a distinct advantage. Um, but that's the said, you know, if, if there is an outstanding candidate from outside the region that goes through that process and everyone agrees is the best person, you know, I would hope that they would get the role. Thank you very far answer there, Johnny. And listen, uh, we've, we've taken up enough of your time already. So I just want to, before we just... Uh, close this one and wrap it just one more just one more question because i'm mindful that we should have got this one in and i know that people cuss if we don't answer the question and actually maybe one that more jimmy has to answer but obviously at the, at the moment in time as we're recording um the women's senior team are prepping ahead of their world cup um tri-series with india uh, and south africa um and also obviously the under 19s team are through to the super sixes having beaten Ireland and Indonesia <clears throat> and uh, lost to New Zealand. And I remember the the West Indies Academy was set up with uh, both uh, men's and women's side. Am I right in saying that the women's side kicks off this year? Or have I got that incorrect? So uh, the under go on, sorry, go on, jump in. Yeah, that's correct. So coming out of this World Cup, um, the, the under-19s are, are going in. The, the best players from that and the I guess the youngest players we either played against Pakistan, A team, when we hosted them in 2021, or in, the, in and around that senior when women set up will come into our academy that we, we're, we're sort of tentatively saying will be immediately after the women's regional. So we'll have the women's regional tournament um, playing by 50 over and 20 over cricket, whilst, as I sort of alluded to earlier, we're, we're expanding the CPL um, in terms of doubling the amount of games. We're not expanding the amount of franchises. So again, similar to the men's in terms of condensing the pool. Uh, they, the, the, the young um, girls in the under-19s have the opportunity to impress and try and get onto the academy. They'll have a second opportunity, we hope, in the regional tournament when all six franchises will be playing 50 over and 20 over cricket to impress to get onto the academy. Uh, and then from then, a bit like I was saying, where the, the men's academy are going to have some away tours, I think our, our A-team focus for women's cricket will be much more on the academy rather than necessarily having academy tours and A-team tours. I think our... our um, our women sort of emerging players will, will very much have a youth under 23 focus and effectively the emerging players academy 
a team will become one team that will hopefully have a regular period of cricket outside of those regional events to um, to hone their skills and, and, and get a get used to maybe some some conditions outside of the Caribbean as as they look to push for places in the senior side. Excellent. Santoki, I hope you heard that. Johnny's saying there's going to be uh, more games in the CPL. So what are you saying, Santoki? Extra chance for Guyana to try and do something? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about CPL this year. <laughs> I boycotted it. <laughs> But um, Johnny, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. You've addressed a lot of big topics. As we've advised, we said never a dull day in West Indies cricket. So for all we know, we might have you back on next week to address some more big topics. <laughs> yeah, look, anytime. It's always a pleasure coming on. And as I said, we're always grateful to uh, to you guys for what you do and, and giving our fans an opportunity to to listen to us and, and hear our side of what we're trying to achieve. But unfortunately, most of the things that we're doing are very much in with a longer term focus of improving the system so i know everyone wants the quick wins and to get the teams back winning and, and we certainly do as well because it would make our lives significantly more pleasurable and and, and easier but, but at the moment we're all really focused and motivated on some, some massive events and um 2022 is was such a good year and you'll see when we promote the um the finances um, of the organization after the agm but the audited accounts in 22 will show record revenue um, in terms of um, uh, ever in our history, you know, almost 80 million US dollars and record surpluses of 20 million. So we're on the road to recovery post-COVID. We're hopefully on the back of that, as I spoke about earlier, 2024 World Cup boost. You know, the finances of this organisation will finally, probably the first time in its history, be on a really solid foundation, which will allow us to hopefully fast track everything we're trying to do strategically as as we fight to have at least a comparable professional system pathway at age group level to produce better players um, that will hopefully mean that our teams can be more competitive and, and ultimately get back to right at the top of the, uh, of the world cricket um, table. So um, that's the vision and the hope and hopefully we'll, um, we'll be able to achieve it. But uh, as you say, it's West Indies cricket. So uh, I look forward to my next uh, opportunities to speak to you guys. <laughs> Listen, thanks so much, Johnny. I know you've got um, other meetings to go to and other places to be. Thank you so much for giving up your time today. And thank you to everyone who uh, listened to this particular episode. That's been another episode of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Thank you and good night. Network.